Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 248, Force of Nature. Welcome in the Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, Force of Nature. The one where Jordy's thinking about getting a cat, and he's got a bit of a rivalry going with an old friend. Uh, yeah, but what about the rift created between space and subspace? You got me. I only watched the first half, dude. I'm really... Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. I guess that might be bad. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first, I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at... Roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, uh, the way I see it, uh, first half of the show is probably about 22 minutes. It usually takes you about 40 to do trivia, so I shouldn't have time to catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're fine. Go watch the show. Uh, or you could just listen to my recap and wing it from hmm. there. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to go watch the show. You do your thing. All right. Today's episode, Force of Nature, was written by Naren Shankar. Now, we've talked about him before. He uh, he submitted a script to NextGen on spec, and uh, they didn't buy the script. But they liked him enough that they brought him in as an intern, and then he, uh, he kind of stuck around. And most recently, his work that we discussed would be Gambit Parts 1 and Part 2. Two. Um, now, of course, we can only imagine, and we would be right, that uh, plot lines about environmental concerns had been kicking around the next-gen offices for some time, and they had. Joe Minoski is one who had played with the idea and then dropped it from his script for Suspicions, um, originally his working title for the story by itself about the environmental issues was called Limits. And Jerry Taylor is the one who really ushered this story along, and Brandon Braga was a champion for it as well, working with Naren to develop it. The episode was directed by Robert Liederman. Now, this is a name we've only come across a little bit before, so it's time for a refresher. He worked mostly as an editor, starting with season two of Next Gen, and the only other directing credit he has is the episode I Borg. Now, he's got more credits coming up as a writer, though, on Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Also worth mentioning that he got his start as an apprentice editor on the 1980 Village People film, Can't Stop the Music. You know that I love talking about ship names. Well, here we have the USS Fleming. And you might be asking yourself, who is it named for? Well, is it named for uh, the guy who wrote the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang book, uh, as well as some spy novels? Nope, no, nope, it wasn't that guy. Uh, was it the guy who started a chain of successful steakhouses? Nope, different Fleming altogether. How about Alexander Fleming? Yes, the USS Fleming is a medical ship, after all, and Alexander Fleming was the man who discovered penicillin in that famous accident in which the mold from bread killed staphylococcus bacteria that he had in a petri dish in 1928 that wasn't until 1940 though that a different team with better funding we should point out were able to successfully test and mass produce penicillin but fleming did get to share in the nobel prize for medicine in 1945 hey guys the tellarians are back Well, not the Tellarians, but their ship is back. Uh, We first saw this model in Suddenly Human, and it has gone on to play the role of many alien vessels in Next Gen. Here it has a little bit of a makeover to pass as the Hikaran ship. Let's talk about guest stars. Uh, The Ferengi Prak is played by Lee Ehrenberg. He's one of those pretty recognizable character actors who has shown up in all sorts of places as aliens and fantasy characters, as well as some humans. Uh, He'll be back on Next Gen a couple more times. He'll also pop up on Voyager and Enterprise. 
You've seen him as a recurring guest character on Seinfeld, and he's probably most recognizable in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies as Pinto. We have Margaret Reed, who plays the Ernest Sarova. She started out in soap operas, and this appearance falls relatively early in her career. Since then, she has appeared in just about every law and order you can possibly name. And finally, Michael Corbett plays Dr. Rabal, also an actor who got his start in daytime TV. Uh, he had regular and recurring roles on no fewer than three major shows, Ryan's Hope, Search for Tomorrow, and The Young and the Restless, over the course of about 16 years. And he has a thing for luxury real estate. And in fact, he gets called on very often as a host for such uh, segments about luxury real estate on TV's Extra, as well as on CNN and HGTV. And he's been doing that since about 1994. Many shows start with characters in bed. Brave is the show that starts with the characters under it. Prologue. Jordy LaForge is borrowing Spot, now a female cat, from his friend Data. He's trying to decide if he wants a cat of his own. It's not going well because Jordy isn't adept at handling felines, and also, that's what you get for having a cat. Spot has ruined all kinds of stuff, and Jordy is definitely deciding against getting a cat of his own. It hadn't occurred to Data to train Spot, but maybe that would be a good idea. Jordy says as another of his possessions goes crashing to the floor. Act 1. Now down to business. The Hikaris Corridor is a little 12-light-year strip of space, free from dangerous Tetrion fields. All kinds of ships pass through there at warp speed, but a Starfleet ship, the Fleming, has gone missing. The government of the only nearby inhabited planet, Hikaris 2, reports that they haven't seen anyone except a Ferengi ship. Could it be that the valuable cargo of the Fleming was hijacked by them, Dr. Crusher wonders? Hashtag not all Ferengi. Searching for anything in this challenging bit of space is going to be difficult, but they'll get right to it. Jordy needs to tweak the sensors, but at that moment he's trying to push his engines for just a little more efficiency. It's not a big deal, not even necessary, really. But Jordy is in a sort of friendly competition with the chief engineer of the Intrepid. It's his pride that's on the line. Getting to the sensors, though, a little of this, a little of that, some light teching going on. But really, it's an excuse for Jordy and Data to talk about Spot again. Data is trying to train the cat. He's using behavior modification techniques and thinking of graduating to sensor nets. Jordy says his sister just kept a bit of tuna in her blouse for a couple of months. Note, probably not the same piece of tuna. Data seems intrigued. They get the sensors back into alignment, and even though there's not a huge jump in efficiency, it must have been just enough for the Enterprise to detect the Ferengi ship that is now in range. The Ferengi ship has about 400 crew, but their systems all seem to be down. She's dead in the water, except, oh, oh, now they're shooting. Act 2. The Enterprise fires back, causing just enough damage to end the firefight. When they get Daemon Proc on a comm channel, he's got a different view of what happened, claiming that the Enterprise attacked his ship. Picard, ever the statesman, offers to collaborate, but Proc wants no part of that. Okay, suit yourself, the Enterprise will just move along and leave the Ferengi by themselves with disabled engines. Well, on second thought... Prack comes aboard the Enterprise, and he's about as helpful as one can be, for a price. They did encounter the Fleming, may even have some useful information in their sensor logs, but it would be really hard to retrieve that information since they have so much repair work to do. Picard has just the thing. How about some help from the Enterprise crew? Suddenly those sensor logs are a bit easier to retrieve. Data is still trying to train his cat, and it's still a losing battle. Teaching a cat no and down might as well be teaching the cat warp field theory. Meanwhile, Geordi is still trying to best his colleague on the Intrepid by squeezing out just a little more juice from his engines. The man's love for power efficiency runs deep. The Enterprise arrives in a debris field which could be the remains of the Fleming, as they navigate through, an object in that field suddenly emits an energy pulse which effectively knocks out the Enterprise's most critical systems. And we have an incoming ship with a couple of passengers who just beam themselves right into engineering. 
They confront Jordy right away. You're killing us. Act 3. Time to meet some Hikarans. It's Rabal and Sorova, and they have a dire message. Warp engines totally mess up their little section of the galaxy. In fact, their planet will become uninhabitable from those effects. They were the ones who set up hidden probes that disabled the Ferengi ship, now the Enterprise. They didn't have time to wait around for a Federation science team. Here's the deal. Sarova will help restore the Enterprise's engines as long as they review the science about how warp engines are having an adverse effect in that area. Picard says, yeah, that sounds good. How about you do that and help us find the Fleming and disable the rest of those probes and I won't toss you into the brig. Deal? Deal. Sarova does her thing, but it's still going to take a lot more work for Geordi to get his engines back to where they were. He poses it to her like this. What if the Fleming had been carrying something perishable or medically necessary and then delayed? She could have prevented lives from being saved. She shoots back that she is the one trying to save lives. The lives on her own planet. Yeah, Sarova is a little extreme, so says Rabal, her brother. Jordi just doesn't get it. Warp drive is safe. Has been for a long time. Rabal says he thought so too, until he started looking at the data. Now he is willing to give it up entirely, effectively isolating their world in order to save it. Data looks at the... um... data. The theory is that warp engines in the corridor are wearing down areas of normal space, allowing subspace to peek through. It would take a lot of power to do that, about a million times more than produced by a normal ship, but the effect, Rabal says, is cumulative. Data says that's possible, but more research is needed. Picard tries to be the mediator, says if they update their proposal, he will absolutely take it to the Federation Science Council, and Rabal seems pleased, but Sorova is fed up. They don't have time for delay after delay with promises to look into the problem. The problem is here now. With the engines back online, the Enterprise can make its way out of the decoy debris field and to where the Fleming actually is. Before they can leave, though, the Hikaran ship pulls away with only Sorova on board. She communicates to Rabal that this is what she needs to do, and a moment later she causes her own ship to be destroyed in a warp core breach. The effect is as she had suspected. The warp explosion causes massive tetrion emissions, creating a vortex in space, a subspace rift. Act 4. Well, Sorova was right. She's just not around to see it. The Fleming is nearby, but trapped in a part of that rift. Is that dangerous? Well, the high-energy waves coming from the rift and batting around the Enterprise are a pretty good indication that, yes, it's bad, especially with the Fleming in its disabled state. Tricky situation. The Enterprise can't use warp engines because everything around them is so unstable, and the Fleming is pretty much going to collapse in 12 hours if they don't get help. Jordi and Data work with Rabal to find a part of the rift that might be stable enough to have them jump in at warp. They're coming up short, but what they do find is a subspace instability just outside the rift might be something to look into. Data's got an idea, though. They can pulse their warp engines and coast into the rift. They'd have just a couple of minutes in the rift to get close enough to beam out the crew of the Fleming. Timing will be critical. As the calculations are made, Geordi gets philosophical. He knows everything about these engines, but why did he miss after all these years that they could cause a problem? Data says there wasn't any way they could know. It was an unprovable theory until Sarova detonated her warp core. A terrible way to prove a point. Geordi also blames himself, that he was taking the argument so personally that he was unwilling to even consider that Sarova's ideas might be valid. He takes a moment to visit Rabal, and he's apologetic. Maybe Jordy had looked more closely, but Rabal says his sister was impulsive and the research was incomplete. They needed more time, but Sarova felt they didn't have that kind of time. She died for what she believed. Rabal says all of this means they'll have to change. Warp drive is destructive. Jordy says he doesn't know how they'll do it. All of Starfleet depends on warp drive. Hard as it might be, the change may be necessary. Back on the bridge, the calculations are done for the Enterprise to coast into the rift, so time to make that so. 
As they glide in, they do pick up the Fleming, but for some reason there is a buildup of energy in her engines. Worf says they might be attempting to use their warp drive. That would be deadly. The Enterprise has no way to reach the Fleming with no communications, and too late, she engages warp drive, which sends a shockwave toward the Enterprise. There is severe damage on the Fleming, but transporter rooms are standing by to beam out the crew. What's more bad news? The rift is now bigger, which means the Enterprise has no good way to escape. Act 5. While they're beaming everyone off the Fleming, the Enterprise is in for a rough ride. All those distortion waves might work to their advantage, though. How about letting the ship surf along one of them to escape the rift? Uh, sure. That. Why not? Geordi texts the ever-living tech out of the deflector shield. They wait for the next wave to come along, and after the initial jolt... Nothing. They didn't quite hit it at the right angle. No problem. Another one comes along a few seconds later, and at this point, ladies and gentlemen, please return your seats and tray tables to their fully upright and locked positions, and make sure your safety belts are buckled snugly around your waist. It gets very bumpy, so bumpy that the ship's hull integrity is seriously in question, so much so that it might actually break apart and... Oh, who are we kidding? They skid out of there just fine. Everybody's good. We can all take a deep breath now and let science get back to... Sciencing the science. Rabal shows the Enterprise crew some truths that are very inconvenient, like a projection map of the area over the next 40 years and just how bad those rifts will get with constant warp travel. The Federation Science Council is all over it, though, restricting travel in the area to essential only and putting a speed limit on all their other ships set at warp 5. Hopefully others not on the Federation will observe these suggestions too, since, you know, they'd be damaging their own space otherwise. Meanwhile, that big old rift is already <clears throat> changing the climate on Hikaris 2. Starfleet will help with some weather control technology, but that will only work temporarily until they can find a better solution. Picard's turn to be reflective now. He's a little dismayed that his life's work in traveling to faraway places and meeting new species was a value unto itself, but the method may have been causing damage all along. Geordi says not to worry. They still have time to make it better. The end. So really, I should have watched both halves is what you're saying. Maybe. They, there might okay. have been, yeah, more to it than All just right. the cat and, and the competition. Maybe the cat in the competition. That is a child's book if ever there was one. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Uh, Jordy's very concerned about things. Hmm. Did you notice? Yeah. And 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 we know there's a catalog store, mm -hmm. but he's you know he's like, oh, your cat broke a vase, and he and he broke some other thing, and he and he turned my chair into a scratching post, and he made that terrible. <laughs> and I'm thinking none of it's yours, and you can just go to the store and get more because you know much. if if some of it was like his mom's or his dad's or something maybe take better care of that stuff yeah yeah well but even then e even if it was his mom's or his dad's you could replicate that too because we know that by the time you yeah. beam something up you might just be replicating it anyway that's not the same thing though i mean <laughs> no, go I back to uh go back to well of course did we didn't have replicator technology in star trek 2 did we nope. those glasses that he gave kirk were like 400 years old mm -hmm. right mm-hmm um, it, it had plastic nibs on the ears. Did you ever notice that? They did. They did. <laughs> Four hundred year old plastic nibs. Mm -hmm. So those have held up well. Yeah. Um. So I would understand if it was like something that had actually been passed down. But I'm also thinking if you're serving on a starship, don't bring anything that's been passed down because someday somebody might just crash that ship into a planet. Yeah. Oh, that would be and, the worst. And then you've right? lost it again, yeah. right? And then two yeah. movies later, they're just going to blow it up some more. Oh. I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah. I may have skipped ahead a tiny bit. Okay. Hey, uh, there's this uh, conversation that Data has with Jordy, and, and I was wondering, why would Data ask why Jordy is trying to get more engine efficiency? <laughs> because literally, if there's anybody on board who would get excited about the desire to squeeze out like a 0.01% efficiency out of anything, it would be Data. Riker wouldn't care. Riker would just be like, oh, yeah, play with your engines, you know. Data it would be, oh, oh, this is great. How can I help? Let, let's do this all day. 
You I'm know? sorry, you say he would be excited, but that would imply emotion. Which, which he totally does not have. Data doesn't have, right. No, not at all. Uh, the question I was wondering even more than why would Jordy want to squeeze more efficiency out of his engines is why would he want a cat? Mm. And that's not me hating cats. <laughs> <laughs> this time because i don't hate right no i hate yeah. cat videos dude there's a whole okay. different thing and okay. actually i'm kind of okay with some cat videos but there are far too many of them and they should be stopped yeah i'm talking about the videos still not the cats sure sure all right i just could i just I, it was never been a thing before i can actually see Jordy as more of a dog person than a cat person but really i can't see him as either because you know his imaginary girlfriend will one day want to come to his apartment and what if she's allergic mm-hmm. yeah that that's such a good point yeah, <laughs> not, not really, but it is what I thought of. No, I, I, I think that's, I think it's spot on. Speaking of spot, yeah, spot. Oh, I like what you did there. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was go good, ahead. right? Uh, spot is now female. Oh, yeah. Uh, spot was male. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, this is this is a, I'm marking it. Mission log episode two forty eight. No more arguments about continuity or canon ever again, <laughs> ever again. Right. I mean, we're literally talking about a few episodes away. That cat goes from male to female, unless Data just keeps replicating cats, and one week spot is male, one week spot is female, and uh, Data just can't decide, so he replicates a new one, but he's bad at coming up with new names. Let's be honest. We don't know how many cats he's actually had. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. quite could possible. Could be a lot. That, could be a new one every other day. This yeah. could be spot eight. Yes. <laughs> yes. Speaking of Data's uh, uh, dealing with the cats, it's a funny bit. Data delivering the line, I have not been entirely successful with, with sort of a nod and a happy tone of voice. But that I, but we all know what that is because we're humans with emotions. Is he too proud to be frustrated? I, I'm just, I'm kind of curious from whom he modeled this behavior because it's such a human behavior. And it's great. It plays well. <laughs> But right. it is a very human behavior. It was a funny moment. I will give it that. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's talk about the Hikarans a little bit. I, I thought that their their makeup was interesting, is the word I'm going to go with. Um, <laughs> because they, they have sort of the ridges in the face, sort of like a T-shaped ridge in their face. And, and then part of their face sort of extends into their hair, which yes. uh, at the very least would make haircuts painful, potentially, if not dangerous in the worst case. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking how fun it would be to do that as cosplay, hmm. but I'd have to get a wig. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I shaved my head, oh, right. of course. <laughs> yes. And then I thought, oh, I can just do it like a bald Hakaran, mm-hmm. but then I don't even know what that would look like. Because so, mm. like the, the tendrils that were like fleshy... Yep. Outside of the hair, obviously, are like a half an inch off the scalp, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, would mine as a bald guy also be that? Oh, or would it just stick to the head? Yeah, I don't... Uh, by the way, as a guy who shaves his head... Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we yes. won't talk about why. Yeah. But, right, so, like... And, like, that's the other thing. Has a Hakara has a never shaved their head? Mm. That might also be really difficult. You think it's tough behind the ear. Right. <laughs> That's nothing compared to whatever the heck's going on right at their temple. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here, you got to move these face tendrils out of the way. <laughs> so, yeah. Indeed. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, I always love it in Star Trek when one system is failing. So in this episode, it's the structural integrity field on decks 10 through 16 when they're trying to get their way out of the rift. And someone has to make a decision to switch to backup. In this case, it's Worf. So he's, he's telling Captain Picard what's going on, and then he says switching to backup. Now, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, I'm thinking he's just reporting what has already happened, because I'm saying, no, those backups should already be on pretty much all the time. Or, or in that split second that that original field is failing, those backups just kick in. So it'd be like, uh, it failed on decks 10 through 16, switch it. Oh, no, it did it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're good. Yeah. yeah. Now, I'm reminded of a, of a favorite movie of yours and mine, mm-hmm. um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Quite possibly the greatest Galaxy Quest movie ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. <clears throat> Wonderful. Yeah. And, uh-huh. they, uh, and, and, and <laughs> like, yeah, they're being attacked, and the ship's losing power, and, 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 and Kirk says, Scotty, what's going on down there? And Scotty comes over and says, we've lost power. Yeah. And Kirk says, well, try auxiliary power. <laughs> yeah. And I always want Scotty to be like, oh, you know, because I was thinking about doing that. And then you called and I had to come over here and talk to you. Right. 
Exactly. <sighs> yes, try auxiliary power. Although you would think, even in the 23rd century, mm-hmm. that auxiliary power would just kick in. Well, it, it, it's like those emergency lights and you know restaurants and airports. As soon as power mm-hmm. goes out, those things just kick on. Right. There's not like a guy who has to say, hey, it's dark. Maybe <laughs> what we should do is switch over to the other lights that can come on without the regular power. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, don't forget that we went through like a world war and some faction wars and all that stuff. Maybe we've forgotten about automatic anything by the 24th century. <laughs> right. Right. Except doors. Except yeah. doors. We have automatic doors. We like that. Um, it, the other thing that we have now in the 24th century, we have a warp speed speed limit. Mm. Um, so the areas most susceptible to problems, to damage, will be limited to essential travel only. And everyone else is limited to warp five. Yeah, I really, I, you know, this could have serious repercussions for every Star Trek that happens after this episode. They're all limited to warp five from now on forever. I see a whole series of how to videos from Data and Jordi. Data's daily cat trainer. Jordi's guide to getting together with a lady for a date. I need to work on the titles. So occasionally you'll come across something in Star Trek that is so blindingly obvious that I'm afraid I might miss it. Okay. Like, it's just so obvious that I'm looking for subtext, thinking, can it really just be that? Yep. There are two B-plots in this episode. There's the B-plot where Jordy has a rivalry with somebody... And I've had the Elvis Costello song in my head all week. Georgie and Her Rivals. I don't know if you know that song. No, I don't know that one. Yeah. It's um, off Spike, I believe. Mm, Okay. It might be off um, The Other Side of Summer. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Mighty Like the Rose. Anyway, it's off one of those two albums. And and if you're like me, when when I said Georgie and His Rival, you're like, oh, great. That'll be in my head all week. Uh, So there's that B-plot, but then there's also the B-plot about Spot. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm trying to figure out... Are they saying anything in particular in those, or is it more just adding to the state of humanity, sort of the human condition, before we get to the part that says, hey, listen, everything you want, everything you want to be, everything you've trained yourself for to this point, higher, faster, stronger, turns mm-hmm. out higher, faster, stronger is going to kill other people. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need you to maybe not go quite as high, not go quite as fast, and you know, by your way of thinking, maybe not be quite as strong. Mm-hmm. Is that what those B-plots are about? Or are they not pillar filler, but are they filler to get us to the actual story? Um, I think they're good filler. They're not great filler. But I I do think they are relevant and related. And yeah, the first time I watched it, all the stuff was spot. I kept thinking, oh, wow, really? They're crawling through the Jeffries tube, still talking (laughs) about the cat? Still. They're still doing this. Um, but then I watched it a couple more times and I thought, okay, they're doing something not really subtle, but but something that is personal and related to the bigger plot, which is a thing about, well, the force of nature, if you will, that I, humans cannot control a force of nature, like, let's say, a cat, and they may make many attempts to do things that, that that might fail in that process of trying to uh, integrate that into their lives. Okay. So so I'm I'm okay with that. And and as far as the B plot with Jordy and uh, and uh, the guy on the Intrepid, um, that really just shows his blindness, right? I mean, it's the thing that he's talking about later after um, the female, her Karen has killed herself, and I can't Sarova? remember her name. Sarova, yeah. thank yeah. you. After yeah. after Sarova has killed herself. I mean, that's really what it's about, right? He's just higher, faster, stronger, and not and not thinking so much about what any consequences might be. He's he's got tunnel vision. There is, in fact, as as data points out, absolutely no reason for Jordy to squeeze another point whatever out of his engine. Well, yes, but I took it as as a slightly different thing as well, which is to say that we're showing Jordy's personal investment in technology and in the engines and in his love of all things Starfleet. 
mm-hmm. you know, he, here's another guy who who is so awkward <laughs> that that his best relationship so far is with the ship's computer, mm. and and you know we we love him for it, uh, but. To me, this shows that he is so I, like, look, if I were a gearhead and I, and I love my car, but if I were a gearhead and I actually worked on the engine and I actually knew something about it and then somebody came along and said, oh, no, sorry, you can no longer have a gasoline powered engine in this car. You have to get rid of the car. I, I might I, I might feel a very strong personal attachment to it, even if it might be better for me and better for the environment and better for other people that I not have a gas guzzling car that I that I have some sort of emotional bond to, you mm. know. So to me, that was really illustrating Jordy. And yes, he has tunnel vision. Yes, he's blind about this stuff, but he's also personal about it. it, it this is also. You know, we've talked before about how people love their technology. They love their iPhones. And it's not just, I like this tool because I use it all the time. It's an emotional thing. Right. Um, and, and I think Jordy is the same way about his engine. So if you're going to tell somebody, sorry, they're hurting other people, we have to find a new and different and better way, then he's going to take it pretty hard. And, and we understand his investment and in not giving that up. Which goes to a lot of the things that we see today as well. I mean, if you talk about, see, I don't think anybody in Oklahoma loves the oil industry, but I think they love the money that comes from the oil industry. And so Hmm. now they're fracking to -hmm. the point that they actually have earthquakes on a regular basis. And still, I would imagine there are oil companies in Oklahoma trying to do what they're doing because, I mean, it's partly the I love this thing, right? Like Jordy loves, you know, tweaking his engines at the mm-hmm, same time. Mm-hmm. Jordy did say at one point that he wondered if he was, I mean, he wondered if he hadn't just felt threatened because he's got a way of life. And yeah. his way of life, somebody's coming along and saying, hey, your way of life is not the right way to be. Not because it's, you know, not because it's evil, but because it's hurting other people. Now, if you persist in doing that, then you could argue about whether or not it's evil. But right. You just found out that this way of life is something that is hurting other people. And the problem is you can't even prove it. You can't say 100% for certain. And so then what you end up with, I'm looking at coal mine states. I'm looking at oil states. (laughs) I mean, what you end up with are people who understandably feel threatened Mm -hmm. at that point. Then the problem is, though, how long do you get to put your fingers in your ears and tell everybody else to shut up? You know, while stuff floats downriver and makes the water downriver undrinkable or, you know, start starting earthquakes in, in like an entire state. Yeah. Well, look, we, we've talked about the same psychological concept, but under different contexts. We, we've talked about it when Star Trek will address issues of belief and religion. The point is, you're not just having an intellectual argument, intellectual conversation with somebody. You're talking about identity. You're talking mm-hmm. about something that somebody is so invested in because it it becomes a part of how they see themselves and how they see the world. In the in the in the case of ecology or ecological um, issues as well, I mean, you're also talking about food on the table, mm-hmm. and I mean that's that's a that's a understandably a very different thing. It's easy for you know somebody in L.A. or San Francisco or Seattle or New York or Boston. To sit and say, you know what the problem is in West Virginia? Yeah, (laughs) right. You know, according to this one guy in West Virginia, the problem is he needs to put food on the table. And so, yeah, he's going to ask for the coal jobs to come back, even if coal is demonstrably killing him and hurting the environment as well. I mean, that that's that's I mean, you are threatening him at that point. Yeah, you're not you're not saying because I mean, because then the problem is you either have to get people on board with another plan that you have or it'd be better still if you came with a plan. Because you can't just come in and say, okay, we're done with this now. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, good luck to you. Have you tried building an app? Maybe. <laughs> right, I mean, I don't right. know what you say to people who, <sighs> all right. So then forgive me. So, so act one, I'm sorry. In the prologue, Jordy says to data, you have to train your cat. Yeah. In act one, Jordy says, I refuse to believe that your cat is untrainable. In act two, Jordy says, maybe your cat's untrainable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And what's Mm -hmm. weird is Data had actually said in the prologue, it never occurred to me to train the cat. And then Mm -hmm. in Act 1, he's like, hey, I'm training the cat. And then Jordy's like, you know, has it occurred to you that maybe the cat's untrainable? And Data's like, it had not occurred to me. And I'm thinking, really? Because 15 minutes ago, it hadn't even occurred to you to train him. But okay. Mm -hmm. 
are, are we talking then, is this an analogy for people who simply won't hear arguments for doing something different? Or are we talking about, I think as you mentioned, or maybe you didn't mention it, maybe I've been reading ahead. Are we talking about the fact that some things, literal things, forces of nature, will not change? Or are we talking about people's inability to to see the need to change where nature won't? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I don't think you're wrong on either count. I mean, they they both actually illustrate, or they both are illustrated by the the by the cat analogy pretty well. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, you could take that either way. Yeah, you really could. Yeah, you know what you I, could do actually. You take the cat, you lock him in yeah. a closet, and you just yeah. never go to the closet again. Oh, there you and, go. And I know what you're thinking. The cat might be dead, but I would submit also might be okay. Yep. <laughs> Right, thank you, Schrodinger. Yes, no problem. The kid who played the piano and Peanuts, right? Is that who yeah, you're talking yes, about? Yeah, Schrodinger that was, was that, that him? Was kid. That, that, that was, was a kid. Yeah, that was him. Yeah, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so, I I watched this episode and I was reminded of this great video that I watched uh, a few years ago from the 1964 World's Fair, hmm. and it's from the Futurama exhibit that General Motors did. And they take you on this tour of what the future will look like and uh, from the perspective of 1964, which, by the way, informed a lot of what Star Trek looked like. So, mm -hmm. of course, you know, um, and it's glorious. You know, it, it is that mid-century view of the future. Everybody has a rocket ship and a submarine and you can live on the moon or Antarctica for a while if you want. Why not? Um, there's this one bit, though. It's in this jungle, and you see this sort of, you know, massive, not a, not a truck, it's like a tank, and it's just huge. And its one job is to go through the jungle, and it just slices down every bit of vegetation in front of it with lasers, and then leaves a trail of asphalt behind it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this is in the name of progress. And yeah. if you watch this, and they, the the announcer is excited by it, and the people watching it are just in awe, and they're like, "Yes, this is what the future will be like. We can just slice through jungles and lay down highways in minutes. This is great." And here's the thing: I, I was born after 1964. I never got to go to that fair. But if I had been a kid, or probably even an adult in 1964, I would have loved that too. I love technology, and I think that technology can solve many of our problems, uh, but we're not doing our jobs as human beings if we are so overwhelmed by belief that we can't assess reality. Here, here's where Jordy is in, yeah. in this moment. You know, he, he is a firm believer in the technology that he has in his grasp. Um, Jordy and really most everyone else on the Enterprise wants to believe that they're not doing anything wrong, that, that their technology only serves for good. And it takes argument, evidence, and, and even just stopping for a moment to entertain the idea that they should possibly reassess their bias. Everything we do has consequence. Some good, some bad. Most things are a mix of both. Um, and as much as I think technology brings us benefits that our ancestors would think were totally magic, I want to think that we are smart enough to reassess and, yes, even stop and change course when we realize that we're causing harm, that there are bigger concerns than our immediate needs and, more importantly, our immediate convenience. It, it's sure less convenient to travel at warp 5 than it is to travel at warp 10. Mm -hmm. No question about it. This is really going to dampen what Starfleet can do, what they can accomplish week to week. Um, but this is now the reality because Captain Picard has been given orders. And you know what? It might even put them in danger if, as they discuss, well, what if the Romulans don't play by the same rules? What if the Ferengi don't play by the same rules? Ferengi don't care. Ferengi just want to know how much Latin they can get out of the prospect. And if Ferengi can get more Latinum faster by traveling faster than Warp 5, they might do it. Hashtag not all Ferengi. But yes. <laughs> that, um, yeah, that, that's what I got out of, of this. It was one of the things that I picked up out of this. Um, 
that that it yeah there's the ecological parable here yeah but i'm i'm also interested in star trek's relationship with technology because we started pointing this out we started talking about this way back in tos that for a show that is about the future it is a show that also is deeply concerned with how human beings interact and react to technology so um i found that to be one of the one of the key components here um I also really like that there's a debate here that reminds me of organizations today that carry out, let's say, ethically dubious actions in the name of saving lives or, or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever the bigger principle is at hand. And, and those actions inevitably disrupt the rights and the commerce and the livelihood of others. And and you can insert whatever names or whatever organizations you want to here. I, I think PETA, Greenpeace, look, on the surface, some of those organizations, they, their intentions are okay and okay by me. But then what they do by action is extreme and harmful. Um, their motivations may be coming from a place that they are doing important work. But they need attention, and therefore they do things that are questionable. Sorova is totally in that boat. Mm-hmm. Sorova is totally uh, of the mindset that, yeah, this is crazy. I'm going to cause damage by doing this, but I have an audience here, so I'm going to do this thing. Here's the problem, though. Today, we know that there are corporations that are doing things that those corporations know are wrong. Sure. We know that Exxon covered up. Mm-hmm. information that it had about climate change. Mm-hmm. And rather than working to fix or working to change or working to educate, they basically funded a bunch of stuff that argued against climate change. Yeah. Um, argued against man-made climate change. And I'm not saying so, you know, blow them up because you can't say that. Yeah. Um, cigarette companies did the same thing. They 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 knew <laughs> that cigarettes cause cancer, but they didn't know that cigarettes cause cancer. And so then they started saying all the stuff about how nobody knows that cigarettes cause cancer. I mean, so so here is the I mean, here is a question. Um, what do you do in that situation? I mean, we've seen a million episodes where one of our crew members, you know, who's done something wrong, walked away with less than a slap on the wrist because they ended up being right. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make what Sarova did right? Well, that was a question that I had. Does Sarova, is she doing the right thing? You know, is it right to be so dedicated to a cause that you use yourself as a martyr to bring attention? I mean, look, you could take that to a logical extreme right here today. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Well, that would deal with dangerous extremists. Mm-hmm. that uh, we would all find incredibly distasteful, incredibly destructive. Yeah. Arguably, though, Sarova did what she needed to do by sacrificing herself. But, I mean, data, data says she uses, quote, methods that no reputable scientist would ever employ. Right. And we can kind of keep this in a, in a separate realm and say, okay, well, science is something that is done in a lab. Science is a method of discovery. Science is not uh, a, an ideology. Science is a method so, yes, her, her methods are crazy. Her methods are wrong. But her intention here is that, well, she's emotionally tied to the situation as well. Her people are dying. Yeah, she believes her people are dying. She doesn't know that for certain. Yeah, well, she, she's got good evidence to support that. She's got decent evidence to support that. She has theoretical evidence that even her brother took a long time to be able to understand. Mm -hmm. And we're given to understand Mm -hmm. that he's brilliant. She's brilliant. And so she understands something that nobody else understands. And so then she, because look, here's the problem. There's a story. It's attributed to Churchill. I don't remember who it is. It's a little bit off color. So I apologize. (laughs) If you're worried about, if you're worried about kids, you know, maybe, maybe you listen to this next part first before they listen to it. But uh, the story goes that um, a, a man, eh, we could call him a gentleman, but we won't really, uh, asks a woman if she will lie with him, let's say, for mm-hmm. $100. And she's insulted. And she says, no, I wouldn't do that. And he says, well, what about a million dollars? And she thinks about it. And she says, yes. And he says, well, now we've established what you are, and we're just dickering over price. Mm-hmm. 
this is the problem with so 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 Sarova is right because she knows everybody's going to die. But here's the problem: she doesn't actually know it; she believes it. And once you come to a place where you say, "Okay, so what she did was okay because you know because it was this important," well, something else is going to be as important to someone else, and is that going to be okay? Right. Right. There are people right now blowing things up because they think I'm going to hell and they want to make sure it happens faster. And they think they're going to go to heaven if they go ahead and blow me up more quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're obviously wrong. Where's the, where's the, where's the line? And because I can't, on the one hand, I can't believe that I'm sitting here saying I'm not sure she was wrong to do what she did. And yet I have to say she was absolutely wrong to do mm-hmm. what she did. Because she put other people in danger as well. I mean, the, the Fleming. Had she done, let me, let me ask you that. Had she done it by herself, there is nobody else in danger at all. Nobody's going to have to save the Fleming. So the Enterprise isn't in danger. The Fleming isn't in danger. She just took a ship and blew it up and created a hole in space that could potentially hurt someone, but they could always put up the cones around it to make (laughs) sure that nobody gets in. I mean, is is what she did okay? Is what she did okay then? Hmm. Maybe. Because then we go to like the people who like spray paint seals. And I think they're absolutely right, honestly, because, you know, it's not going to hurt the seals. <laughs> and it is going to keep them from getting killed. Yeah. I mean, look, you could take it to an extreme and say, oh, okay, well, if all it took was a warp core breach, then do you have a remote ship that you can send out to a safe distance and then instigate a warp core breach? And then, boom, there's your evidence there. That, that seems like a pretty simple experiment that they could mm-hmm. do. Um, flip it around and say, okay, well, they set up these... Um, they set up these uh, uh, probes that would disable ships. And, and as Jordy said, well, what if it was carrying medicine? What if it was carrying something perishable? And what if people died? Then if she was acting on her own and she disabled that ship and then cared nothing else about it and turned around and went home, we would call her a terrorist. You mm-hmm. know, plain and simple. Um, and you might still have to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You might still have to call her a terrorist. I mean, there are some people, I mean, the term you didn't use earlier when you were talking about PETA was eco-terrorism. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. a thing. And and it's wrong. And it's understandable. Yeah. It is both wrong and it's understandable. I mean, obviously where it crosses the line is when people get hurt or die. Sure. Um. <sighs> <laughs> 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 I wish I had something better to say after that. It's almost like my own private little word, dude. I mean, I wish I had something better to say after that. I mean, what I would really like is if we get everybody, there's a fantastic cartoon. I can't remember who did it and I can't, I can never remember the exact quote, but basically somebody is standing up and says, wait, what if we clean up the environment and, and we, and we live, you know, more sustainably. And it turns out it wasn't going to be important to. Yeah. Or like, you know, it turns out the world wouldn't have been destroyed anyway. I guess what I really would like is if we could go to a place and say, why don't we go ahead and live better anyway? Because even if it turns out the world wouldn't have been destroyed, um, we're living better. And I guess, yeah, <laughs> that we can't, that we can't just say that, that we then have to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, mm-hmm. you know, and so we're all going to be, you know, waiting around until, uh, I don't know, until we're waiting out to get our paper, no matter how high the hills are in which we live. I do not want to be that computer. But does a warp 5 speed limit not just draw out the destructive effects of warp travel? It's the part of the episode where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings and try to figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. The episode that we're talking about this week is Force of Nature, John. Force of Nature. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Well, look, it's classic Star Trek with about the bonkiest on the head message you can find. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there are multiple messages in here, but... This is sort of like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, where Star Trek is reaching through the TV and saying something directly to the audience about an important issue of the day. There's nothing subtle about it. And here's the thing. It was an important issue when this premiered in 1993. (laughs) And 
it's an important issue now when we're talking about it in the early part of the 21st century. Um, it's an episode with its heart in the right place. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it in the language that they use. The, the arguments these characters are having are the very same language that people use to debate issues of global scientific importance today. Ultimately, though, and this is where I'm going to split hairs a little bit, as an episode of TV, it kind of slowly plods along and is really people talking at an issue. You can tell that they're padding for time. You can also tell that they're adding action where they can. Uh, but, you know, the little Ferengi plot line where we take that little detour with Proc, uh, the bits about Spot, yes, they're related, but there's a lot of it. Um I think this is not a great piece of storytelling. It's a pretty good piece of debate TV. It's a pretty good piece of, you know, ripped from the headlines. This is what people are concerned about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with those shortcomings, I'm going to give it a pass, warts and all, because this episode speaks to what Star Trek tries to do when it's good. And... Maybe I'm being a little too easy on it because I want Next Gen and its final season to be better than it has been so far mm. <laughs> because we've had some weak moments here. But with all those episodes that, that were sort of these failed attempts at figuring out a little more about character, which which we did very well in the uh, Picard and Crusher mind reading episode, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did pretty well with that. Uh, but the, a lot of the other stuff has just not really launched correctly. This, I feel like, is Naren Shankar and, and Jerry Taylor and Brandon Braga saying, hmm, Star Trek was a show that tackled issues. And Star Trek was very often a show that made a statement about those issues. So we're going to go for it. We're going to go for something that is big and complicated and that people are personally invested in and that they will debate to no end, but we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's a tradition of Star Trek that I really like. So um, I I can't ignore the the problems here, but I will ultimately say that uh, that this is an episode that holds up. How about you? I actually, I'm more forgiving of the problems this week than you are. Hmm. Because I didn't feel them. Hmm. I mean, the whole thing, except for the prologue, where the whole thing just starts with the cat. Yeah. That was a little like, um, really? That's what we're doing? Okay. <laughs> but honestly, there was no, none of the times that I watched it for this week's show, did I feel like, now what's funny is, I say none of the times that I watched it that I feel like there was anything wasted, but I keep forgetting about the Ferengi part. But it, it takes mm-hmm. so little time. I mean, what's weird is this episode jumps from, it's not until really act three that we come to the problem yeah. in this episode. And yeah. that's amazing to me that we get halfway through the show before we actually know what the show's about. And yet I wasn't sitting there the whole time. It's sort of like I had the episode when uh, in the Gambits in part one, in Gambit part one, when it's like, oh, Picard's dead. And it took us five minutes to establish that for no good reason. And then it takes us almost the whole first episode before we find out, no, he's not dead, which we knew Mm-hmm. I mean, it felt mm-hmm. the whole time in that episode like, okay, just get to the part that I'm supposed just get, just get to it. And this, this episode meanders, and yet it does it in a way that maybe because it, they weren't forcing comedy into something terribly dramatic, like the stuff about the, about the piece of tuna and his sister's blouse. It wasn't particularly funny, but it was light. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it had like, it, it, it sort of followed the same theme all the way through. I think they're just like, I, I did not find as much fault in this episode as you did. Hmm. Now, I will say, uh, this episode has affected me for a very long time, uh, hmm. to the point that I remembered the end being a lot heavier than it was, because the way they have to live from now on to make everyone safe, or, or really just to slow the degradation. I mean, it's not really going to make everybody safe. It's just yeah, like, yeah. look, we still have to go, but I'll tell you what, we'll go like half the speed that we like to go. Is that okay? I mean, it's a fairly big deal. Like I say, the first half of this episode on paper seems to go absolutely nowhere. And yet I was not frustrated with the spot stuff, nor with the Geordi stuff and his rival bit. Hmm. I mean, it was, um, I, I think it was probably, I mean, I get what you're saying. I think if you looked at the story structurally, you'd be like, eh, I'm not sure. Yeah. But when I was experiencing it each time, 
And here's the, the other thing is I was also, it was halfway through the episode before I realized, oh, this is that episode. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. I haven't known the name of that episode. I know I've even brought it up on Mission Log a couple of times. Um, and I haven't known the name of the episode. And it was not until they showed up and said, you know, you going warp speed is killing us. And I was like, oh, that's this one. And yet still, I wasn't upset that Act 1 and Act 2 seemed to take me nowhere. So, yeah, I have to give it a... It's it's weird. It is a strange way to tell the stories. It certainly doesn't get you into the action quickly. If I came to you and pitched you a movie, I was like, so listen, the first 20% is going to be... <laughs> I'm thinking of getting a cat. Right, <laughs> right. You'd, you'd think I was an idiot. Yeah. I think it... Yeah, I really do think the episode holds up. And that's even before we get to the messages part, or including the messages part. But let's talk about those, shall we? Yeah, well, I, I mean, look, they they tell you the relevant current situation they're addressing they just come right out and tell you oh by the way our climate is changing <laughs> you know <laughs> he actually says that at the end yeah That's yeah right. he, he does that she's kind of our funny. climate is changing yeah um I, I think this episode goes beyond being simply an allegory about climate change and and human stewardship of nature of of our own planet um that subplot with Spot basically says, hey, guess what? Nature will continue to outsmart you and be beyond your control. But you have to have patience and you have to change tactics when that's needed, too. And I would add to that um, that, you know, it's really Jordy that I think we are meant to identify with here. Because, again, his personal investment in what he does is a big part of who he is. Mm -hmm. So he's got to learn the lesson to step back and look at the technology and look at the situation simply for what it is um, and be able to adapt to that. So um, I, I like that lesson for uh, for all of us. Um, yeah. What else? I think it's just driving that same one home and understanding that change of that magnitude is going to be difficult. Jordy mm -hmm. says to Rabal. Mm-hmm. Rabal, yeah. I've been in Starfleet a long time. We depend on warp drive. I just don't know how easy it's going to be to change. And Rabal says, it won't be easy at all. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, so don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, when Jordy is able to get his pride out of the way, when Jordy is able to get what he is personally invested in out of the way, when he's able to get who he personally is out of the way, he knows what has to be done. And it's not going to be easy. And it's certainly not easy to get yourself out of the way of it either. But hopefully you can do that part because that will certainly make the rest of it easier. But look, how many times the Star Trek said to us from the very beginning that uh, doing the right thing won't always be the easy thing. But guess what? We as human beings are pretty spectacular and we can actually live up to that if we really try. So then what do you do? You got to frame it, right? What did John Kennedy say in 1960 or 61? We're going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. We choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Mm -hmm. and, and there's glory in that. Mm -hmm. There's there's glory in doing that. Now, granted, we had the Soviet Union, uh, you know, to fight at the time yeah, or to compete against. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth doing. We yeah. have been a people at times where because it was hard was the reason to do it. Mm -hmm. Why do you climb the mountain? Because it's there. But the real question, of course, John, is Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why, Why? is he climbing the mountain? Why is he climbing a mountain? Mm -hmm. um, I should ask you, by the way, uh, do these episodes, uh, do, do these messages rather hold up? No, everything's fine now. Ah, uh, isn't it nice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we solved all of those problems. Um, <laughs> Planet Earth. Yeah. Planet looking Earth. Looking good. We're Planet looking good, guys. Earth. Yep. <sighs> it's Miller time. And it's time to let you know that Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, not sponsored by Miller, by the way. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Roddenberry, of course, isn't into many things. Hey, you know, we're talking about problems uh, that the world faces. Roddenberry's got a whole foundation dedicated to to sort of steering us out of some of those problems in the in the decades and even centuries to come. Uh, so you can find out about the foundation at Roddenberry.com or if you're just a podcast lover extraordinaire, uh, podcast.roddenberry.com. That takes you to us. That takes you to Women at Warp. And that takes you to Priority One. That's three shows with more in the works, even as we speak. 
For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. If you want to help support this show, gosh, that'd be nice of you. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. And finally, for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Inheritance. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think I have solved the warp travel conundrum, but it involves accepting some hard truths about transporters. Look for my how-to video on the subject, coming soon and transmission.